Hello and welcome to this month's episode of the Basis Podcast, Agronomy Matters. My name's Greg Hopkinson, Head of Business Development at Basis. Firstly, I'd like to say a massive thanks to my colleague Jade Prince, who took over hosting duties last month. I thought it was a fantastic episode and I'm sure we'll have Jade hosting an episode again very soon. But for this month's episode, we've been extremely fortunate to work alongside the team at the Kellogg's Origins Project. All three of our speakers have been carrying out research as part of this initiative and we're going to find out today a bit more about what their projects have involved and how they might help UK farmers move towards more sustainable farming practices. Firstly, we were joined by Dave Freeman from the agriculture team at Ricardo, who have been carrying out some research on a farm in Bedfordshire, looking at how agriculture can move towards becoming a net zero industry. We were then joined by John Holland, head of farmland ecology at the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, whose project at Loddington in Leicestershire focused on the role beneficial insects play within integrated pest management and the habitats that are required to support them. And finally, we spoke to Clive Blacker, Head of Business Development within Arable Agriculture at the Map of Ag. The project Clive has been working on was looking at nitrogen use efficiency in the UK, especially how monitoring and analysis can help improve this and what impact this would have on UK farms. So before we meet our main guests on this episode of the Agronomy Matters podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by two of the key drivers behind the Kellogg's Origins project. So we've got Dave Fitzgerald, who is Head of Responsible Sourcing for Kellogg's in Europe, and Duncan Rawson, partner at consultancy firm EFFP, which focuses on the link between food supply chains and farming. So Dave and Duncan are going to explain a bit more about what the Kellogg's Origins project is, why it was set up, what its future goals are. So thanks for both joining us today and welcome to the Agronomy Matters podcast. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. Um, hi, hi there. So the first questions are for, for David. So I'm sure a lot of us have heard about the Origins Project, but could you explain what, what actually is it and what, what does it do? Sure. So Kellogg, um, as a, a global food company, um, you know, have a focus on responsible sourcing uh, and with that in mind, we have 15 global priority ingredients that we responsibly source. Uh, and as part of that program, um, we invest in sustainable agriculture projects globally. So the Origins program is the umbrella for that program. So globally, we have about 40 Origins projects across all of our sourcing regions uh, in Europe. We invest in a number of projects. We invest in a, a project with wheat farmers farmers in the UK, we have a project in Spain with rice farmers, uh, and we have a couple of other smaller projects uh, as well across the continent. But our, our main projects are the Spanish rice project and the UK wheat project. So why are Kellogg's particularly interested in this? Why are they set up the project and, and what's kind of the overall goal? Yeah, there's a couple of things. So I suppose one um, and one of the primary reasons for setting it up was to sort of maintain that connection with farmers and farming and, you know, having that connection with, with how our ingredients are produced. And then looking at the consumer trends and the way, you know, uh, people's expectations of food are changing, wanting to understand that 
trans uh, have transparency around sourcing of ingredients and then also ensuring that those ingredients are sustainably produced so you know there's there are certain perceptions that the consumer has around you know conventional farming you know the use of um of ag agrochemicals the uh climate impacts uh, of, of farming uh, the biodiversity impacts so we're working with uh with our suppliers and with farmers on initiatives to move into more sustainable agriculture practices, more regenerative agriculture practices, um, you know, focusing on areas like uh, climate and, and biodiversity as well. So some of the key priorities there are quite long term. So what are the real future plans for the Origins project looking forward? Yeah, so we, we, we've done a lot of work uh, with, in, in the UK with Duncan support uh, on, you know, topics like cover cropping, looking at a, a net zero uh, carbon assessment on farm uh, last year for one of our growers, um, looking at field uh, margin planting and integrated pest management. A lot of those activities uh, and initiatives have been, you know, on a relatively small, in many cases, pilot scale, maybe, you know, on one or in a, a small number of farms. So I think moving forward, you know, globally uh, and also within, within our European projects, we're looking at how we can support farmers to implement these types of practices at scale so you know looking to work more collaboratively with others in the in the value chain be that customers uh be that peers uh, or, or even competitors in a pre-competitive space to see if we can find ways to reach more farmers and support more farmers to implement uh, more sustainable practices that sounds really exciting and links really well with a few questions for Duncan now, a bit more about, about the food supply chain. So your role is very much focused on that, Duncan, and how the food supply chain and farming can work together. What do you think the challenges are for this and how can we develop a more integrated system? Um, it's a really interesting um, question. I mean, I think the, the big challenge within the supply chain um, is that much of the... Um, emissions, if you like, the climate impact within a, within a supply chain such as Kellogg's actually takes place at the farm, at, at, at the farm level. You know, you, farmers very often don't like to hear it, but that, that, that's the reality of it. But at the same time, a lot of the mitigations and the answers also exist at farm level as, as well. Um, so the food, the, the farming and the food industry, the, the processes, the manufacturers in particular, and, and on, but also the retailers, I think need to got to work far more closely together to help the farmers make the changes that they need to make, but also help them to de-risk some of the decisions that they're going to have to make in the future as well. So you spoke there about what role kind of food producers and retailers play, and we all know that food production has got to become more sustainable, but what, what can they actually do to help farmers and become more sustainable businesses? Well, I think that the Food industry downstream for farming has got two um, big advantages, more, more, more than anybody else in, in a lot of respects. And that is they've both got resources, I hopefully are profitable businesses. So they've actually got resources that they can put into projects. But they've also got influence because they're buying, they're buying the product and they can influence for what happens um, upstream from at, at the farm level. But the crucial thing then becomes that they're influencing in the right way and they're doing the right things. So if they want interventions on farm to improve the environmental performance of, of, of a farm, improve the sustainability of the farm, it's actually 
trying to influence things in a way that's going to benefit that farmer. It's going to enhance their um, profitability as well as their environmental and, and, and social um, credentials, as it were, as, as well. So before we speak to our three main guests, can you just tell us a bit more about where people can find out about the Origins project and, and potentially get involved in the future? Um, I can. Again, it's an interesting um, question um, because we don't have somewhere where people can actually just go to find out about the Origins um, project. And that's something that we, we want to rectify going forward. Um, but if people want to find me, um, I can I can talk them through um, the, the, the project. Um, no problem about that. And people can find me on um, our website, which is www.effp.com and get in touch, basically. And I can talk them through through what the Origins project is about. Um, but also, you know, important um, aspect of the of the project is that everything that we do is what we call open source. So, you know, the, the cover crop work that Dave talked about before, for instance, there's a guide that's been put together about that. That's available to anybody who, who wants it. Um, so we're, we're more than happy to share. That's fantastic. And, and thanks again, David and Duncan, for giving us a bit of an overview. And we're now going to move on to speak to our first main guest. So our first guest on this episode of the Agronomy Matters podcast is Dave Freeman, who manages the agriculture team at consultancy company Ricardo. Dave has been involved in a Kellogg's Origins project at Priory Farm in Bedfordshire, alongside farmer Henry Northern, which is focused on how agriculture can move towards being net zero. So thanks for joining us today, Dave, and welcome to the Agronomy Matters podcast. Yeah, nice to meet you, Greg. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. So firstly, I thought we'd start with a, a bit of a brief overview of what the main objectives were for this project. Yeah, thanks, Greg. So the um, quite a small project for us, really, but uh, working with the Callum's Origins Programme, so that's a, a grower group, um, trying to explore a little bit around how uh, the programme, but in particular some of their growers, can, can move towards a, a net zero farm and what that might mean for them. Um, so the, the idea was to do a carbon, carbon audit and kind of develop a bit of a programme around um, what, what kind of actions could they take to, to deliver somewhere close towards net zero. That sounds great. And, and I think thinking about agriculture more broadly, it's got quite a bad reputation with the general public, I'd say, regarding its impact on climate change and, and greenhouse gas emissions. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Uh, I think farming's had a lot of attention in the media, quite quite a lot of bad attention in the media over the last sort of four or five years or so. And a lot of what's been put out there has actually been sort of international reporting. So some really dramatic numbers around how much of a contribution agriculture makes. And uh, no, it's not fair. I mean, and it's it's not been helpful either. I mean, many in this country in particular have felt like um, they've been blamed and challenged for, for the emissions that come from agriculture, the emissions that come of causing climate change. And reality is in the UK, it's quite a different picture. Um, agriculture contributes quite a lot less than it would against a kind of international average. Um, I think the important thing to say is though that you know, although agriculture uh, perhaps isn't the only cause of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, you know, at the same time, we can't do nothing. So it's, you know, it's been a challenge, you know, farming, has got emissions and they're, they're kind of inherent within agricultural practices. But the reason we farm like we do is because that's what we've been asked to do for decades. Um, I mean, the important thing is that rather than kind of put heads in the sand um, and rather than kind of 
put the, the walls up. Actually, I think the industry has shown a lot of leadership over the last couple of years. So people like the NFU, some sector leaders really sort of stepped up and said, yeah, we do need to take some action. We need to understand what that means for the sector. Uh, for me, that's the positives of this. And that's you know, what we're trying to do to help is to help people understand, you know, why is there emissions from agriculture? What can we do to help? Um, how can we start that transition? We've got a part to play. Agriculture owns 70% or manages 70% of the land across the UK. So the only way we're going to decarbonise is if agriculture is involved somehow. Um, we need to do a better job of helping farmers to understand what the messages are what the actions are, but also making sure we communicate that better with the public because it's it's not straightforward, it's not simple. Um, we've got a part to play, but it certainly isn't farming's fault, certainly not in isolation. So like you said there, kind of all industries are going to have to look at this problem and like you say, agriculture is a part of that. So if we're looking towards becoming a net zero industry, what are some of the key ways that greenhouse gas emissions are actually produced within agriculture and can these be tackled going forward? Yeah, you said to keep this simple, Greg, and unfortunately this isn't simple, um, so I'll try and be brief. But um, So for most sectors of the economy, what we're really talking about is, is use of fuel, use of energy, and, and carbon dioxide emissions, so burning stuff and carbon dioxide emissions. For agriculture, it's not that simple. Um, what we talk about is biological processes, and the, the main sources of, of emissions are, are nitrous oxides from soils, and that's, that's basically from you know, nitrogen fertilisers as they decompose, they, nitrification, denitrification processes, and we get uh, nitrous oxide, which is more potent than carbon dioxide as greenhouse gas. So you know, each, each molecule warms the atmosphere um, about 300 times more than a carbon dioxide molecule. So you know, quite small quantities of it have quite a big impact. Um, you get those from kind of, you know, inorganic fertilizers, but also from manure uses. Um, the other side of it, and the one that kind of gets banded around in the, in the mass media a lot is, is kind of enteric fermentation, livestock burping, belching, that's responsible for about 50% of emissions in the UK. Um, and you know, what we talk about there essentially is animals that live. And how on earth can we engineer that? So it's quite difficult to solve, but about 50% of emissions from that. And then the other, the other major source is methane from manures. And again, methane's um, you know, more potent CO2. So methane comes from um, enteric fermentation and it also comes from manures. And, Again, it's you know, more potent than CO2. So those are the, the three major sources, um, about 90% of emissions from agriculture from those three sources. Uh, the last one is, is um, CO2 from um, engines and fuels. So station, station machinery, um, tractors, that sort of stuff, but also from heating, lighting, that sort of stuff in the, on the properties. So small amount of it from CO2 relative to the, to the other sources. Um, and they are quite different to other sectors. Um, and they mean that means we need to deal with them in a different way to other sectors, which makes it a little bit more challenging. I think it's one of the reasons that agriculture hasn't progressed perhaps as quickly as other sectors is we've got to try and work out how we influence biological systems to try and influence some of these emission sources. And, and that isn't something you can just pour concrete for. So like I say, it's quite a complex process and, and you started on this project. One of the first steps was carrying out an assessment to see what the farm's current carbon footprint is. So how do you actually go about doing that? Yeah, so the um, I suppose before you can make any changes, you need to understand kind of where you are. It's a little bit like doing a budget. Um, before you can build a business plan, you need to work out what you're trying to do, what you're trying to solve, what you're trying to achieve. So um, there's there's a whole load of commercially available carbon audit tools out there. Um, as part of this project, we we looked at a, a couple of tools and um, focused mainly on one that was produced as part of the Cool Farm Alliance. So it's a Cool Farm tool. So catalogs are part of the Cool Farm Alliance, and so 
uh, we primarily focused on that tool to help us undertake a carbon audit for the farm. Um, the challenge with that tool is it's a product-based tool, which means you know, what we look at there is how much, you know, what, what are the emissions from the production of a, a, you know, a field of wheat or a field of barley um, or, you know, your dairy system. Um, that gave us a bit of a challenge in that what we're looking to do on this project was to do a, a whole farm assessment. So we've had to do quite a few little assessments and stitch them all together. Uh, and there's elements of that kind of product focused to where we can't make an assessment. So if you think about the marginal areas, so that the uncropped parts of the farm, they're not included in that sort of tool. So um, we also therefore had to look at how could we fit in some of those gaps. And so we've had to do some, uh, some bespoke assessments. So that's kind of one of the strengths of my team is you know, a lot of expertise in, in kind of how do you do greenhouse gas accounting at kind of nation state or kind of a, a particular product level. Um, and so we've had to go and look at things like the agri-environment options that Henry had chosen to, to implement on the farm and do a calculation for them separately around kind of soil emissions, around soil sequestration, around um, kind of carbon capture and, and kind of accrual over the, over the next few years. So it, it wasn't a straightforward exercise. And unfortunately, none of the tools that we looked at, and there were two other tools that kind of again commercially available that did a, a slightly more whole farm approach, but they still don't pick up everything you need to do to be able to do it. That net zero assessment, which is essentially a kind of an understanding of the um, the emissions from production versus the removals of carbon from the atmosphere through stuff like uh, biomass accruals, crop you know, crop growth or grass growth or you know, root growth and, and kind of carbon stored into the soils. Um, so as I say, it's kind of we started with a tool. The tool gives us the first step and gives us a bit of a, a baseline to work from. But to do the sort of detailed analysis we wanted to do for Kellogg's work, we had to go a bit further than that and do some more bespoke assessments. That's based on kind of academic literature and national guidance um, from people like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So once you've done your assessment, the next part of the project looked at four different scenarios and the potential impact they could have on the farm's carbon footprint. Can you just talk us through what were these scenarios and which of them had the greatest impact on the farm's carbon footprint? Yeah, um, so once we have a look at the baseline and looking at the kind of cropping that, that Henry had on the farm, it's kind of fairly standard, you know, Midlands-based um, crop rotation. So wheat, actually, there's some beans there, some also grapes, some spring barley. So a little bit of diversification. Um, also a bit of grass lays and stuff. And that, that's quite important in the assessment because there's options that Henry had got in there that helped to develop our scenarios. So we looked at four scenarios with Henry, and we developed them in conjunction with him. So they weren't pie-in-the-sky, crazy new technology ideas. They were things that he could relatively easy roll out or, or was already in the process of doing. Um, so the first thing we looked at uh, was you know, a reduction of 25 kilograms per hectare of nitrogen fertilizer. Uh, looking at the, the numbers, and Henry's performance is actually quite good, you know, fairly decent nutrient use efficiency on his farm, but actually probably a little bit beyond economic optimum in terms of the amount of fertilizer being used. So recommendation of sort of a bit of a pullback on that. Um, that had a, a you know, significant, not huge uh, reduction. So that's about five and a half percent of the total emissions reduced by that kind of cutback of the, the nitrogen fertilizer use. But, but that's certainly one which would be a, a first place to start for most people. Anything you can do around nitrogen fertilizer use will, will give you greenhouse gas savings. Um, the second one, which um, again, Henry was looking to implement through agri environment. So he's looking to put that through a country stewardship. Approach. So 
what he, he's done there is to remove uh, about 80 hectares of land out of production. Um, well, that's putting some into margins, so pollen nectar mixes, um, and then also 30 hectares into a rotational lay, um, so a, a herbal lay, mixed herbal lay with legumes in it as well, which would be a two-year 30 hectare rotation. So he's taken quite a bit of area out of production, but what he also looked to do there was to take the less productive areas. So the, the marginal land, he was looking to take up that, those areas which were, were cropping at sort of 75% of the average for the whole farm. And taking that land out of production and putting it into some kind of option um, reduced the, the net emissions for the farm by about 19%. So actually pretty significant. And if you think about what he's done there, we didn't look at the economics of it per se. Um, the, the reduction in nitrogen use was about 1% reduction in the, uh, the output, the yield output. Um, the, the took about five, just over five and a half percent of his land out of productive area by putting into those options. But at the same time, if we actually looked at the performance of those, he's probably not, he's probably done himself a favor on his gross margin in that fact, because that, that area is probably cropping below kind of uh, the point of, you know, um, net return. Um, the, the next couple of options that we then looked at, we found we were a little bit more um, dramatic. So, the first one was an introduction of civil pasture, so uh, relatively spaced out trees across some unimproved pasture area, which Henry's got going through the middle of the farm. It's like a, a bit of riparian area, so stuff along the side of a river, Great Goose River, and, and then an area along a, a ditch through the middle of the farm. And that's used for uh, rented grazing. It's pretty unimproved, doesn't get much, uh, much activity on that, that part of the land. And, that was an area where we felt that you could put in some high value, relatively well-spaced um, woodland or trees. Uh, and that option actually gave a very significant change. So it's a slightly different option. What we're not doing with that is to reduce the emissions. We're actually looking to offset emissions elsewhere. So that option gives us a, a carbon capture sequestration potential. Uh, and that equated to about 31% savings across the whole holding. So that's the big, biggest single reduction um, in terms of the net balance across the farm. And then the final option was to have a little bit of a look at the, uh, the, the infrastructure around the farm. And we already had a bit of photovoltaic on some of his roofs, but we put together a proposal for you know, some additional photovoltaics, but also the introduction of a biomass burner with a distributed power. So they've got about 20 cottages that they could share that kind of distributed power system with. Um, that would essentially offset fossil fuel emissions from the national grid. So although not directly influencing Henry's own emissions, it would offset emissions elsewhere in the economy. So that was about 4% emissions. So in total between the four scenarios, about 60% savings on the baseline projection for, for the first assessment we made of Henry. But the big, you know, the big ticket item was, was really the, the putting in some, um, some ability to capture carbon and offset emissions through that civic culture, which um, wasn't a huge area, but could be quite significant in terms of if you could manage that pasture land slightly differently. So, as we said at the start, this was part of the Kellogg's Origins project. So, how did they help support this work? So, we uh, we got involved with the, the Origins group to to give them a bit of a briefing on uh, net zero and and what that meant for the industry, just to, to help explore with the group a little bit around the language and and some of the, the subject matters for, for net zero and greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. 
Um, so having spoken to the group as we were invited by um, Duncan and Dave to, to come speak to them, um, we, we started to sort of explore ideas with those guys. And uh, the, the project that we delivered was supported in terms of you know, funded by, by the Cattle's Origins Programme. Um, and then obviously by the, the growers that are involved in the Origins Programme as well. So we've uh, not only been funded to do the work and, and supported by Henry to, to have a deep dive into his particular farm, um, we've also then supported discussions with that group and, and helped to explore um, what this means for farmers. They fed back to us in terms of um, how we can kind of improve our communications, how we can improve the kind of approach towards the project. So it's been a really interesting project to be involved in. It um, sounds quite a simple thing to do at the, at the outset, but actually having a bit, a bit of a deep dive, it's really encouraging that we can probably go further than we expected we might be able to um, on, a, on an arable system like this. Um, but also it's quite disappointing that it's it's not that simple necessarily to do the, the net zero assessment, which I hoped you know, we'd be able to roll out to all of the farms in the in the group. But um, really pleased to be working with Callogs on this work. It's you know, really good to see them getting involved and trying to explore the subject matter, trying to work out how they can support their growers to, to try and start the journey towards uh, reducing emissions and hopefully towards net zero longer term. So as we look to kind of reduce emissions um, in agriculture, based on kind of other research as well as this study, if you were going to give an arable farmer um, some real top tips on how they could reduce their carbon footprint in quite a kind of simple way, what would be a, a couple of tips that you'd give them? Uh, first thing I'd always say is do a carbon audit. Um, if you don't know where your main emissions are coming from, and you don't know where you're starting from, it's very difficult to understand if, if you've achieved anything. So um, there's, there's, there's quite a few tools out there, and, and actually what I tend to do with these things is I point off towards Champion the Farm Department CFE website. They've got quite a good bit resource back there to, to explain what is a carbon audit and, and kind of how do you go about undertaking a carbon audit. Um, it's much more straightforward than I can try and explain on the podcast and um, save, save confusing everybody who's listening in. But um, So the first thing, do a carbon audit. Doesn't really matter what tool you use, um, but if you do use a tool, uh, just recognise that it's not 100% accurate. So you can't really claim the figures are, are kind of exact. But if you're going to use a tool, keep with that tool as well, so you can measure change over time. Um, the other thing is, first up, soil management. Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff we can do to make to make the soil work for us. So it's not all about organic matter. It's actually about how your soils are functioning. So organic matter is really important. What you want is a function, you know, really good, healthy soil, functioning soil. So think about compaction, think about your structure, um, think about your rotation. Is there something you can do to just make your, your soil you know, function better, work, work for you? Arable systems, fertilizers are critical. I mean, fertilizers will be your single biggest point of emission at the farm, you know, at the field. Um, so anything you can do to improve the nutrient use efficiency is critical. And that's not just about nitrogen fertilizers, that's, you know, think about balanced nutrition as well. So make sure you're doing soil analysis, make sure you've got your, uh, your PK, MG, pH all in order, make sure you're looking at kind of beyond that if you can, and you know, actually having a proper nutrient management plan going into the details will really help you drive nutrient use efficiency up. Um, if you're using it, organic, you know, organic materials, if you're using them, if you've got access to them, it makes complete sense from a soil health perspective to start to use them and start to integrate a bit more um, organic matter back into the soil. But if you are using, using them properly, think about how you're going to use them. Do some analysis on the content, the nutrient content of your, of your manures, your organic materials, um, and, and try and minimise emissions as much as you can by 
by uh, applying them in the right way, um, working them into, into the ground in the right way if, you, if you're cultivating. Uh, those are probably the top items to start with. Um, and then beyond that, there's a whole load of very, very detailed measures that you can take. But the first thing is to start to engage in it really. And the trick is that every farm is different and the right things for you are going to be different to the, to the guy next door to you. So um, there's, there's quite a lot of support out there. There's still a lot of confusion in this space, but at the same time, I think um, once you've started on the journey, you can start to figure out the stuff that works for you. But the, the big ticket items are you know, fertilizers and measure it. That's great. So if we're looking a bit bigger picture then and going forward, um, the NFU have pledged that um, agriculture will be net zero by 2040. Um, do you think that's realistic? It's a really mean question, this one. Um, so I think there's, there's a couple of levels on this one. So I think if you look at something like the assessment we've done, the work we've done with Henry, Friary Farm, I think it, it wouldn't take a huge amount of extra action to get to a point where that particular farm could be net zero. Uh, I mean, I didn't talk about the from the hedgerows, the marshland, the woody mass that, that Henry Allen's farm. And although we've kind of assumed that that's, that's not really delivering much in terms of sequestration at the minute, you know, a bit more active management around woodlands, around trees and biomass. And that's quite quickly, you know, the, the, the silver pasture shows that you can quite quickly get to a point where you're offsetting emissions. Well, that's kind of fine at the farm level, but I don't think we've quite got that strategy right if we start to look at the industry as a whole. It's definitely more progress. We haven't got all the answers yet. Um, there is some more technology, I think, that needs to come before we can get to the net zero position. Um, you know, unless we start to take action, we're not going to get anywhere near it by 2040 because there's a long way to go. So there's a whole lot of stuff that can be done already. We've shown that in this project that you know, thinking about how you use fertilizers, um, you know, thinking about how we manage the livestock sector, you know, if we can really drive performance, productivity through the livestock, that starts to help us get as efficient as possible in producing meat and milk. That's really important. So there's a lot of stuff we can do already, um, but you know the work we've done with Henry shows that we can't do that just by saving emissions. There's no way we can get to net zero if we're just reducing our emissions. So there's going to need to be some change in the way that we manage the land, and that's almost certainly going to be taking some land out of production. Um, probably changing how we look at rotations. Certainly going to include some kind of tree planting. Um, we need to offset emissions. We're not going to be able to decarbonize fully. So we do need to think about how you offset against something else. And, and hopefully that's the area where we're going to get a bit more clarity. So in the bioenergy market's probably going to be something which is critical to offsetting, not just probably agricultural emissions, but also energy emissions. Um, it's a big challenge. I think we've had some really good leadership. I think you know, the ambition from the NFU is uh, a bold statement. Um, we haven't quite got the answers yet, but at the same time, we have got quite a lot of stuff that we do know that we can do now and start to take that journey. I think the one thing we can probably say though is that if we think about the challenges that agriculture is facing, there's a lot of them at the minute. Um, lots of political uncertainty, lots of you know, uncertainty in terms of what the next five years look like from a, from a financial perspective. But if you think about the last five years we've just been through, I don't think there's any sector that's been impacted as much by climate change. I think we're all seeing the impacts of climate change. And so the challenge is, is kind of twofold. We've got to get to a point where we're playing our part, decarbonizing. Um, but we've also got to do that in a challenging environment, which is going to be getting more and more challenging to farm on. So we've got to think about how do we adapt while at the same time trying to mitigate some of the impacts of agriculture. It's not going to be easy. And that's the, the thing that worries me the most in the work that I'm doing. It's how do we support farmers to, to get to a place where we are you know, sustainable, 
you know, we're contributing towards the whole wide economy wide uh, reduction and sequestration of carbon. But we've also got to do that at a time when it's going to be even more difficult to farm because of you know, political change, because of climate change, um, because of upheaval across the sector. So although I think we can do it, I think it's a huge challenge. I think there's a lot more support that we need in terms of helping to understand how we get on that trajectory and how do we get farmers to a point where they understand what we need to do, but they can get there in a way that isn't going to you know, cause more harm to themselves or to the environment. I think that's a, a great place to finish and a great summary of the kind of work you've been you've been doing on um, moving agriculture towards net zero. So thanks for joining us today, Dave. You're welcome. Thanks, Greg. So our second guest on this episode of the Agronomy Matters podcast is John Holland, Head of Farmland Ecology at GWCT. John's been involved in a Kellogg's Origins project at the Allerton Project in Leicestershire which looked at how habitats can support populations of beneficial insects and what role this can play within an integrated pest management strategy. So thanks for joining us today, John, and welcome to the Agronomy Matters podcast. Hi, yeah, thanks for inviting me. So a lot of agronomists and farmers will have heard about beneficials, but what exactly are they and what are some key examples? So the, the beneficials are the ones that control pests and actually most pests are controlled by beneficials they never really get to a threshold level because of these background levels of uh, control that happen so there's two types of uh, predators broadly uh, generalist predators so these are the ground beetles spiders predatory flies uh, and they eat almost any sorts of other insects anything they can capture so they're good sort of generalists for mopping up uh, the odd pests that appears and then there's the specialist groups like parasitic wasps, hoverflies, ladybirds, lacewings. Uh, and they're more focused on a particular group of pests, such as aphids. And actually, they're, they're probably much more effective when they actually find the pests because they'll just hone in on a, on a patch and eliminate them. So quite different to the generalists, but you need both of them. Um, and within those, there are some which are ground active and others which are crop active. So, for example, a lot of the beetles, spiders are obviously ground active and then a lot of the specialists actually can fly and, and find their, their uh, respective pests. So you gave us some examples there. So if I was a farmer or an agronomist and I wanted to go and monitor beneficials to see what I've already got on my farm, how can I go about doing that? Uh, it's a very simple way to look at the ground ones is just to sort of put a plastic cup in the soil and make sure that the lip of it is level with the soil surface and either just add a few stones in there if you just want to catch them and let them go again. Or you could put a bit of uh, water and detergent just so that wouldn't make them sink and then you can come back a few days later and have a look and see what you've got. Uh, if you actually want to keep them for a bit longer then I suggest putting sort of 50% antifreeze in there and then you'll be able to catch, catch them and keep them and look at them later. Um, the other way is just using a, a sweep net, they're quite cheap to buy and you just sort of thrash that through through whatever vegetation you want to look at and then empty it into a tray. And that's quite a good way to get an instant uh, look at what's in a particular habitat. Then there's other things like sticky traps you can use, um, lots of different ways, but uh, I would suggest those first two are probably the best. So we all know that we should be following the principles of integrated pest management and beneficials play a crucial part in this. So what are some of the key ways farmers could actually enhance the number of beneficials on their farm? Uh, well, I like to advocate the 
the SAFE approach, uh, which is described in the new Kellogg's Guide on Nature-Based Solutions to Habitat and Crop Management. And it's also in the AHDB Encyclopedia of Pests and Natural Enemies. And the SAFE approach is um, uh, an acronym for uh, four different approaches that you can use. So shelter, alternative prey, floor resources, and then an environment that's free of pesticides and intensive soil cultivations. So for the shelter, they're looking for sites to overwinter and to breed in. So for beetles, it's tussocky, grassy, grassy uh, margins at the base of a hedge, um, and any sort of habitat where they can sort of get out of the way from uh, farm operations. And then in terms of the alternative prey, really what we're looking for is a diversity of plants because lots of insects are related to the plant diversity. So the more plant species you have, the more insect species you have. And that way you're going to have lots of different types of alternative prey for when the pests aren't present. So trying to get plant diversity up on the farm. Uh, flowers are really important because of the nectar and pollen they produce, but also the seeds. And so lots of these beneficial insects will make use of floral resources. Uh, umbellifers in particular, so cow parsley, wild carrot, that sort of thing, really good for parasitic wasps and other flies. And then finally, the environment that's basically free of, of uh, insecticides as much as possible. So now let's talk a bit more specifically about the Kellogg's Origins project that you were involved in. Can you just tell us what the overall aims were for this and what research you actually carried out? Yeah, so the cereals that are produced by for Kellogg's uh, do rely on many natural processes. And so the Kellogg's Origins farmers have undertaken uh, practices to improve soil health and, and the natural landscape. And so it includes improving hedges and wildfire flower areas and putting more habitats onto the farms. So what we wanted to look at was whether how effective this was um, in terms of what types of beneficials were present and also whether that was then increasing the levels within the adjacent fields. So we used a range of different traps types, the pitfalls and the sweet nets to, to look at this. And so when you actually looked at the results from the research you did, what did you find and how can that help farmers move towards more sustainable farming? Well, the uh, pitfall traps caught what we might expect, really, lots of beetles and spiders. Um, but what was interesting is the actual numbers of beetles increased with distance into the field. So they weren't really affected by the, the different types of margins. And we found that in the past. And, and what's occurring there is we're catching mostly beetles which overwinter and, and live all year round within the fields. So these are, tend to be large black beetles of, of one species. Um, and so you're catching most of those and they don't actually like the field edges. Uh, but that's quite good. These, these beetles are, are really well spread across the field. So that means they're providing good background uh, levels of pest control. Um, but what we have noticed in this study and in many of the other studies conducted by GWCT, and one in particular, which we repeated. So we sampled lots of crops in the late 1970s and then we repeated it 40 years later. And we found that now there's about four times as many beetles in the fields, but they're just dominated by one or two species. So what that means is we'd lost a lot of this sort of diversity. Uh, and that's a bit worrying because if, if that one beetle just happens to get hit in some way by disease, whatever, then you've lost your pest control. So it's always good to have a diversity of insects. And what's happened, I think, is the, is the smaller ones which rely on the um, field margins to overwinter have, have disappeared, a bit more susceptible. 
Um, and then in terms of the sweet net samples, we found that hedges had the most uh, insects, um, two and a half times as many compared to the other habitats, which just shows, you know, this is a really important habitat. So having nice, thick, well-managed hedgerows is, is going to help your beneficials. And also having, uh, you know, well-managed hedge base as well, with lots of uh, tussocky grasses and not too dominated by uh, sort of nitrous villous plants like uh, nettles and, and, uh, and other sort of more noxious weeds and things. Um, we found the wildflower and the pollen nectar good, supported good numbers of beneficials, as you might expect, because they're giving those floral resources, but also ditches as well. And I think that's because they have lots of the umbellifers, so things like cat parsley on there. And so they were really good. But overall, we tended to find up to about four times as many insects in these habitats, and then they decrease with distance into the crop. So that's quite important because it means that these beneficials aren't attracted to the crop and not getting in there to control the pests. Um, and that's probably due to the lack of weeds. So a lot of insects feed on weeds. Um, and so a good way of attracting the beneficials is to, is to have a few weeds in the field uh, and that helps them spread out. That's really interesting. Something um, a lot of farms and agronomists might not normally think about is um, aiming for a slightly uh, weedier field. But um, yeah, really interesting. And and we spoke a, lot, a bit about the measures farms can implement to enhance beneficials. So you spoke about shelter and, and flora resource, things like that. Can these have any other positive impacts on the farm landscape? Yeah, well, I mean, insects perform many different functions. So they pollinate crop plants and wild plants, of course. Uh, they recycle organic matter and they're food for other organisms. So most farm and birds will feed their, their young on, on insects. Uh, so vital food source uh, in, in farmed habitats. But also we can use the habitats uh, in a multifunctional way. So for example, beaker banks, you could establish those across a sloping field rather than up and down it to help uh, prevent runoff and erosion. Uh, likewise, tussocky grasses can be used to buffer watercourses. Uh, pollen and nectar can store carbon, build soil fertility. So there's all sorts of ways we can use these extra habitats to sort of help, help the, the wider environment. So my final question, just looking towards the future a bit more, what other plans have you got for research into this area? Yeah, we've got some projects already on the way to sort of extend our knowledge. So one's called Bespoke, which is a European funded project from the Interreg programme. And we're doing that in, in the, around the North Sea region. And in the UK, we're particularly looking at uh, pollination of field beans. We know that they're dependent on, on wild bee pollination. Um, but we really don't know how much extra habitat you need to put in there to increase those bees sufficiently to affect the pollination, improve it. So we're looking at that, that relationship between the amount of flower-rich habitat in the landscape and numbers of wild bees and, and crop pollination, and also how much field beans do depend on that um, pollination. Um, we've all got another European project as well called Framework, and that's we're looking at the farmer cluster approach so lots of organisms operate in a wider landscape, not just at the individual farm level, farm and birds, pollinators. And so we're, we're looking at how well this farmer cluster approach uh, is actually improving levels of, of some of this wildlife, particularly birds and pollinators at the moment. And then uh, the other ongoing research that we're always doing is, is this long-term monitoring. So we have the, uh, the Sussex study, which is run by the, the Trust. We monitor 
um, insects in cereal fields every year in June. And uh, we've also extended that to, to about six other countries, uh, looking at insect levels in crops and non-crop habitats. Uh, and this has shown really that we have got alarming declines in insects. I mean, um, substantial numbers uh, have, have gone. So for example, natural enemies are down by almost 70% on what they were in the 1970s. But then the aphids have also gone as well. So 90% decrease in aphids. So actually there's less, less pests there, but being replaced by other pests, of course, and, you know, they're always going to be there. Um, so we do need to do these measures if we, if we want to uh, help these insects, which are providing all these in, important services for us. I think that's a, a great place to end. That's all the questions we've got today. And, and it's been really interesting to learn a bit more about what beneficials do for us and, and how we can support them. So thanks for joining us today, John. Oh, thank you. So our final guest on this episode of the Agronomy Matters podcast is Clive Blacker, Head of Business Development within Arable Agriculture at the Map of Ag. So Clive's been involved in a Kellogg's Origins project that's focused on nitrogen use efficiency and how improving this can help reduce the environmental impact of food production. So thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Clive, and welcome to the Agronomy Matters. Thank you very much for having me. That's great. So I've said there, um, we'll start with, I said nitrogen use efficiency there. Can you explain yeah. what is that and why is it so important? Well, nitrogen is a, our single biggest cost uh, when we're growing our, typically our wheat, wheat crops. Um, and it's, it's a product that we re rarely look at the efficiency of use of. We, we look at it in terms of optimising, but efficiency of use isn't a metric that, that you would often hear talked about on farm. And when I started getting interested in this about five or six years ago, I was quite horrified to find that, you know, typically my use efficiency wasn't as good as I thought it was. And, and that quite a lot of the product that we were applying wasn't actually being taken off by the crop. So use efficiency in, in its simplest form is the amount of nitrogen we apply to the crop versus what's, what's then actually removed with the offtakes of the crop in terms of yield and grain protein. So with those three metrics, we can calculate an efficiency index and and, and look at how effectively and, and accurately we're using the inputs we're using. Now, I think we'll all agree that farmers in the UK hate wasting money and, and things they've, they've bought. And I think at the minute, nitrogen use efficiency sits at about 60 to 65 percent. But is this good? How does that compare to other countries? And are there any opportunities for this to be increased? Yeah, so, so the UK, in essence, is is actually performing better than the rest of the world in a lot of cases. I mean, global use efficiency is probably only about 40%. And in worst cases, it can be down as low as 20%. Um, there, are, there are some issues with some countries that are just significantly over applying nitrogen and not really taking into account what the crop requirements and needs actually are and oversupplying it. So it's not a, a limiting factor to yield. And, and we all know that without enough nitrogen, that, that yields can be suppressed. Um, so, so there's a lot of opportunity for, for us to increase that. Um, I think we've got a long way to go. And we started benchmarking back in um, 1996, sorry, sorry, uh, 2016, uh, looking at our own use efficiency. And, and typically we were in that 60, 60 to 64% bracket. So I was quite horrified that if you think you're investing, you know, the thick end of 154 pound a hectare in nitrogen, um, that you're only going to get 94% of that back or 94 pounds of that investment back and the rest of it's disappearing into the environment somewhere. So, so trying to understand that and, and look at that as a metric has been something that we've been 
uh, actively trying to, to develop and uh, highlight farmers' opportunity to really understand that metric because it's not something that's talked about within the industry widely. So moving on now to look at the actual um, project you did with Kellogg's Origins, can you just explain a bit about what research you actually carried out? Yeah, so obviously um, Kellogg's are very interested in, in improving their use efficiency and making sure that their supply chain uh, is, is efficient and that is doing the right things for the environment. Uh, nitrous oxides are, are, are enemy number one for the arable industry in terms of uh, our greenhouse gas emissions. So trying to understand how we use nitrogen and, and how that could actually be impacting on farm is, is something that we were really interested in. So we had a, a two-stage approach with the Origins project. The first was to, to really capture data from farms on, on where they are today. You know, you can't take somebody forward if you don't know where you're starting from. Um, so the initial, the initial exercise was to do just a, a basic mapping information, comparing yields and offtakes with uh, uh, nitrogen inputs across a range of farmers in the group. And we, we identified within, within that bit of work that uh, efficiency ranged from somewhere in the region of 40 to 45% in worst case situations. And to be fair to farmers, that was after the really wet autumn we'd had. So there was some particularly shocking yields because of poor establishment, not necessarily through you know, farm practice and, and poor practice, um, all the way up to, uh, to over 120% use efficiency. So we then set out a phase two in, in saying, well, how can we help farmers look at utilizing the crop and, and monitor the crop in different ways so we can then actually target our inputs to really address the, the nitrogen rate that the plants actually need. So in essence, we're really trying to use the plant as the nitrogen sensor uh, and use the metrics of the plant or measurements of the metrics of the plant to then inform on how much more nitrogen to apply. And that's the work we've been doing this year with the farmers. So when you applied that new practice, what were the results that you actually found? What actually happened when you when you used nitrogen that way? Well, it, it's interesting. So, so what we're finding is that, that we can certainly improve use efficiency. Uh, without question, there's, there's an ability to, to apply nitrogen in more responsible ways at times when the plants actually need it. Uh, and, and then uh, make sure we're trying to then put on the right rate at that right time. And we've been using technology that allows us to, to monitor the, the levels of nitrogen within the crop and, and just try and make sure that the crop isn't stressed or deficient in nitrogen. Uh, what we've actually achieved um, in, in our own farm at home where I've been conducting the trials, we've taken use efficiency to nearly 100% this year. So we've really improved it from the, the, where we started at 64% up to 70%. And now we're, we're really, this season, we managed to achieve uh, yield goals, uh, yield goals where about where we thought we should be, uh, but equally we use efficiency 98.8%. So I lost two pound of my investment in nitrogen that I haven't removed with the crop. Well, that sounds really impressive. But what I do always like to do on this podcast is I like there to be some takeaway messages that people can actually use on, on their farm. So if you're an arable farmer in the UK and you want to improve your nitrogen use efficiency, like you were saying, wasting less of your inputs, what can they actually do using the technology currently available? Well, the, the first thing to do is, is to look at how you're growing your crops. You know, you, you can't do anything without measuring it. So we're, we're working on method, methodologies in how we can support farmers to take better readings and looking at hyper-local measurements and then using um, remote sensing data or technology like Yarren sensors to then extrapolate that across the rest of the field. 
so we can micromanage in a small part something that is in high resolution uh, and we do that through soil testing and through leaf testing uh, and leaf testing to, to reduce the cost of that we use technologies that are like spad meters or, or, or NDVI meters that allow us to measure the amount of nitrogen within the crop and from there we can make a decision on how much have we got into the crop how much is already in the environment around it by knowing what's in the in the soil plus what we've applied with the conversion factor to then calculate whether that plant should be deficient or in excess of nitrogen and then we monitor the crop throughout the season um, so there is a big input in time needed it, we, we you know we, we're trying to collect data uh, when I do it at home I do it every three days uh, farmers have been doing it every every sort of week um, but there is a challenge in terms of time commitments that people need to pay to get the data back, but it does pay dividends at the end of the day uh, into the wallet. So we spoke throughout this kind of interview um, about the environment and greenhouse gas emissions and um, wasting resources. So all those kind of things would suggest that potentially legislation might come in. Do you think nitrogen use is going to become more heavily regulated and what impact would this have on UK farming? Uh, any, any regulation that comes into the industry will affect it, you know, whether that be the burden of record keeping and, and additional compliance data that people need. Uh, but equally, it could hamper yields. And, and if we start hampering yields, that's going to hamper quality. So if we're wanting to produce high quality bread or high quality cereals, then the challenge we're going to have is how we can supply that market domestically uh, with a low quality product. And, and that isn't something that we should do. I think what we really need to be looking at is, is rather than necessarily using a big stick, is encourage people to think about the nitrogen use efficiency, encourage people to monitor and measure and use these products responsibly, and by taking account of, of what's in the soil, what's in the crop, and what's in the grain when it leaves at harvest. Uh, and that way we can run a, a net nitrogen balance within the crop, within our usage factors, we can, we can really draw attention to where the limitations are in losses, and try and support farmers then to, to make better decisions on how they can reduce those losses. So you spoke earlier about the work you did on your farm and how you got pretty close to 100% nitrogen use efficiency. But if we look at kind of the industry more widely, do you think the industry will ever get to anywhere near that kind of level and, and what changes would have to be made to get anywhere close to it? Uh, we, need, we need smarter equipment to help farmers monitor crops more regularly. Um, and that's something that, that is in development. There's, there's lots of different sensors that potentially farmers can use that we're, we're looking to evaluate. Um, you know, the key is having the right data and the right information. Uh, I'm pretty sure that, that um, within, within a few years, we've got a lot of potential to really help farmers support that. And we can do that at scale, particularly where technology is going with remote sensing, with the ability to, to, to target variable applications of nitrogen, but combining that with ground-based ground truth data that we know to be really accurate. Well, thanks for joining us today, Clive. I think that's been a really interesting topic that um, it just shows there is still loads of room for improvement and it sounds like there's going to be lots of exciting um, opportunities going forward with that. So yeah, thanks for telling us about all the work you've done on your Kellogg's Origins project. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and we look forward to, to learning again in the future. Before we leave you today, I'd like to say a massive thanks to the Kellogg's Origins project for collaborating with us on the podcast today. All three of our speakers gave us a fantastic insight into research they have been carrying out and it's great to hear the positive steps the food industry has taken to support UK agriculture to become a more sustainable industry. 
The work John Holland spoke about also neatly links with a new online course, which has recently been made available to our members on the Basis Classroom. This is the first ever classroom course, which has been produced by the team at Basis and looks at managing pests and boosting beneficials within arable crops. If members would like to find out more about the Basis Classroom, which has recently moved onto a new and improved online platform, then please visit the Basis website or email digitallearning at basis-reg.co.uk. For our Basis Professional Register members, you can claim one CPD point for listening to this episode of Agronomy Matters by logging into the members area on the Basis website, selecting Submit CPD Points and entering Basis Podcast Kellogg's Origins into the publication title and reference number boxes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Basis Podcast and we'll see you again next time on Agronomy Matters.